Welcome to the podcast, Neither Free Nor Fair, about election security and the fate of democracy in the 21st century. This is episode 12, Count the Votes or Stop the Count. I'm James Long, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Washington and co-founder of the Political Economy Forum. For today's guest, I have returning podcast champion, Charlotte Hill. Charlotte is a doctoral candidate in public policy at the University of California, Berkeley. She studies voter mobilization and turnout and structural barriers to political participation in the US. Charlotte also sits on the national boards of Fair Vote, a leading election reform organization and Represent Us, a nationwide bipartisan anti-corruption campaign. And she has previously served on the San Francisco Elections Commission. And in today's New York Times, she and Lee Drutman have published an op-ed titled America votes by 50 sets of rules. We need a federal elections agency. Hi, Charlotte, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me. So Charlotte, is America about to lose its collective mind because we are still counting ballots and don't yet have a certified winner of enough electoral college votes to claim victory in this election? I really hope not. Uh, I think individually, a lot of us are going a bit crazy, uh, but I hope that people can have the patience to wait for every vote uh, to be counted. And it seems like we're actually doing okay on that front. You know, there were a lot of organizations uh, and political campaigns over the past couple of months who saw this moment coming. Uh, we knew that, that there are many states that have a multi-week period during which they can count the ballots that are sent uh, back via mail or, or left in drop boxes. And we knew that um, because uh, voters who are voting by mail are disproportionately Democratic this cycle, that President Trump was going to try to have the vote count stopped early because he knew that that would be his best shot um, of, of ending up with a count that was you know, biased in his favor. Uh, so everyone saw this coming. Election experts have been saying for months, you know, hey, we, we need to make sure that, that all votes are counted, even though they are going to shift blue uh, post-election day. So I think the, the folks who kind of control or have uh, say over the national temperature, you know, a lot of media elites, uh, political leaders, uh, have been prepared for this and are putting out these messages on, on Twitter and in the news and elsewhere being like, take a deep breath, have some patience, wait for every vote to be counted. So that's my hope. I hope we actually get through this, this process. Charlotte, why does it take America so long to, cast, uh, to count its ballots? Or why does it take certain states so long to count these ballots? And why, why are certain states very fast? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and I think that my fear is that people will look at how uh, the vote count is, is uh, it seems delayed this cycle and they're gonna say, oh, this is because of mail-in voting, uh, that it just takes longer with mail-in voting. And that's actually not the case. We have pretty quick vote counting processes in states that have universal uh, vote by mail systems like Colorado or Oregon or Washington. Uh, the issue has been this year that frankly, the the National Republican Party has pressured a lot of states um, to not begin counting, not begin processing even, you know, the envelopes surrounding these ballots that were cast by mail until election day. Um, and again, the hope was to delay this process sufficiently so that Donald Trump would appear to be in the lead on election night um, and give him an, an easier shot of uh, winning the presidency despite losing the popular vote, which we sort of knew would happen well in advance from polling. Uh, so, so part of it is a question of when can states actually begin processing and counting these ballots. There are some states where they can do it uh, as ballots are coming in. You know, the envelopes are getting scanned, signatures are being matched. Uh, sometimes states are even actually tabulating the votes and just keeping those results private until election day. That being said, 
there's never been an election year where we actually have all the votes counted on election night. Uh, we, we have some of the votes counted and based on who lives in different precincts and what we know about how they're likely to vote, we can make uh, predictions about what the outcome of the election is gonna be. And if those predictions are kind of robust enough, we'll see outlets like AP announce who the victor is well in advance of the votes being counted. So one of the things that I think is, is, is sort of contributing to the anxiety on the part of the voter and the audience um, is that you, you, in states like Florida and North Carolina, they had some of the first polls to close and some of the first um, counts that were posted very quickly in very large numbers on election night. And those were from both mail-in ballots, absentee ballots, as well as in-person voting. And actually Biden was ahead in both states early on and then it kind of went Trump. Um, in other states, you have it the, the reverse, what you said, that sort of red mirage before the blue shift. Um, but for a, a person just watching this, it's, it's confusing because it's not clear why that occurs. And it, 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 it feels a little bit unprecedented. I mean, some of us are old enough to remember Florida in 2000 when it was back and forth. But for the most part in elections, you sort of kind of know within a couple hours how each state is going to go. So how are voters meant to sort of try to navigate that and then navigate it over 50 states? I part of, I'm, I'm pausing because I kind of wish that we didn't have to navigate it. You know, there's something to be said for waiting to announce election results until we actually have these votes counted because um, everyone's trying to play pundit and pollster and forecaster right now from the, the comfort of their home after maybe having taken an intro to political science class. And I think it's causing a lot of national grief that doesn't need to exist. No offense to people Charlotte, who take political need, science classes. We need them love, to take our classes, Charlotte. I so love they... <laughs> political science classes. I love them. I love them. Um, so, so I do think part of this is just that um, it's, it's complicated, even though that's a, an annoying answer to hear. Uh, part of it is that, uh, as we've seen with the forecast from this cycle, uh, even the people who study this stuff uh, very closely and who have tried to make the best guesses about how uh, individual areas were going to vote uh, have gotten some stuff wrong. We, we're not always great at knowing how people are leaning and what, what their ballots are going to look like when they're coming in. So then you end up with this situation where uh, not only are not only are we seeing these these votes get counted in real time, but a lot of really smart people are expressing surprise and shock because we're seeing results that we didn't expect in Miami-Dade, for example, in Florida. So then that creates a sense of uncertainty among people who are following the pollsters and following the forecasters. The final thing I'll say, though, is that we just have a very distributed election system in this country. We have 10,500 separate election jurisdictions, approximately. Uh, that are you know, housed within 50 different states that each have their own election laws. And those different laws don't just shape when ballots get counted uh, and how they're processed. They shape how people can actually vote, how easy it is for them to vote. Um, sometimes even what sort of information they have on the ballot. You know, there are places where you don't have a D or an R next to candidates' names. You, know, you have nonpartisan ballots, and that can shape the actual vote choices that people make if they walk into that ballot box and don't really know much about the candidates that are listed. Um, so, so to the extent that people feel confused watching results coming in, feeling like it's, it's a, a crazy, uh, uh, uncoordinated system that we have here in American elections, they're, they're right. Charlotte, you'll appreciate this. I was observing elections in Ghana in 2008. And at the time, I don't know if this is still true, but at the time, the Ghana Election Commission said when the when the vote stops on election day, 
for 72 hours, we are gonna count ballots. Do not ask us for updates. Do not bother us. Leave us alone. We will say absolutely nothing for 72 hours. And at exactly 72 hours later after the vote is done, we will tell you who won the election. And it's brilliant because then everybody gets sleep that night. Nobody's, there's no anxiety. Everybody just kind of knows to wait. People can go shopping the next day. People can get their haircut. They can go back to work. And I've always wondered if that would be a better system in the US, at least for states that actually do take a long time to count ballots for whatever reason, which is just, hey, everybody just relax for a second and come back to us in a few days when we certify the election. I am inclined to think that that would be a great idea. You know, imagine that you have a loved one who is getting a life or death surgery and every five minutes, the doctor's running out and saying, okay, okay, here's where we are now. Uh, we're gonna jump back in there and keep going, but so far it's looking good. Or, hey, there was a little hiccup, but but I think we have it under control. Imagine how anxiety produces. And, and being awake for the surgery as the patient. Uh, exactly. And then <laughs> imagine instead, yeah, taking it from the perspective of the patient, the patient, imagine instead waking up at the end and the doctor yeah. says, hey, it went well. Like that, that's what we need with our election results reporting, I think. But I do think, do you think, I think the media is, is, I think for the, exactly the reasons you said, which is that people went into this knowing that this might be an issue. The media, at least the media that I sort of watch, I think has been better than in previous years. Do you agree? Or do you think there's still a lot of room for improvement? Better in what sense? Well, sort of saying, you know, we're not going to call this state too early, trying to explain, you know, Steve Kornacki, who is amazing. I don't know how he, he is like a robot. I, I don't think he's slept in weeks, but sort of looking at the actual vote count that's posted, but then sort of interpreting for the audience, the remaining vote count and what we do or do not know. And, and therefore, you know, why it may or may not be the case that a network has called an election. Um, Fox News has done this as well, I think a lot better than in the past. CNN, I, I haven't watched as much, but um, just sort of giving the viewer, um, not necessarily relieving the anxiety, but giving them more information about why certain things are still outstanding. Yeah, I think that they have done a better job of that. I would agree. And there has been a lot of preparation that's gone into media reporting of election results. Um, Rick Hassan had organized a group of elections. This is a, an election law scholar at kind of top of the field. He had organized a group of election uh, fellow election law scholars and um, kind of nonpartisan election advocates to in part speak with media outlets and help them understand how to report election results appropriately this year. So credit to them and to other organizations that have done that work. Uh, that said, you know, Fox has called Arizona for Biden and um, I think AP followed suit and it still seems like it, it's not 100% clear that that, was, that that call was made appropriately or whether it was premature. Uh, yeah, I'd say it's better, but not perfect. Can you walk us through Arizona and Nevada for a second? I think the Arizona situation is a little confusing because you know, now we have this count center in Maricopa County, we have protesters that have shown up, we have counts that are, you know, legally and importantly happening overnight, but then pauses and kind of dumps of votes, but like in 12 or 24 hour periods. And in Nevada, my understanding in Nevada, at least in Clark County, is they've said, we'll talk to you when we want to talk to you, stop bothering us, we may not talk to you until next week. Yeah, very they're like the Ghanaians in that they're like the Ghanaians in that sense, they're taking their time, but doing it well, I think. Yeah, very different results reporting approaches. So the, the tricky thing with Arizona, separate from the, the kind of data dumps that we've been seeing that I think are, are making people a little bit crazy as they're eagerly anticipating them and don't know when they're going to come. 
the the tricky thing about Arizona is that they have ha they have a lot of mail ballots that are left left to be counted, um, but in areas that seem to be disproportionately Republican. But from what I understand, there are areas that are disproportionately Republican, but also those Republican voters are disproportionately supporting Biden. So it's just like a like Russian dolls. Like you open oh. one, you think you have the answer, and then there's another answer buried inside it. Um, which again gets to our bigger point, I think, of like maybe we should all step back and stop trying to forecast what's going to happen when we know that in a day or two we're going to have the answer. Uh, so let's just wait for the answer. And yeah, I think that Nevada is doing that that pretty well. They've said, listen, here's when you're going to get the results you want. Um, you know, just be patient. Can you talk us through Pennsylvania? You and I who work on election administration, we're always supporting election administration workers. They, I mean, these people really are heroes. They're the frontline responders. They are the, the, the EMT and the doctors and nurses of democracy in the United States and in every country that has elections. But Philadelphia, uh, sorry, Pennsylvania has been one of those states that has not always been kind of up to where we want. Um, and that may both be true now as well as Pennsylvania facing new difficulties now. Can you kind of walk us through what we should expect from Pennsylvania and what you see as kind of the landmines and the challenges and what you see as the, the, the things that appear perhaps to be problems but really aren't? Yeah, well, so as you indicated, a lot of us were worried about Pennsylvania going into this election. The fear uh, was that there were going to be a number of ballots that came in post-election day, but well within the current legal window for when these ballots could be received, you know, postmarked before or on election day, but received by election offices after election day. Uh, and that uh, the Republican Party would mount a legal challenge. The Supreme Court would ultimately say, okay, GOP, you're right. All of those ballots can be thrown out. Uh, and Pennsylvania would then uh, be more likely to, to go to Trump um, because a bunch of left-leaning, you know, a, a pro-Biden ballots would, would get rejected. That was, that was a big fear going into the election among uh, kind of fair and free election advocate types. Uh, and, and I think it was a fear for good reason. The Secretary of State had ordered that ballots that were received after Election Day be segregated, kept, counted, but kept separate. Uh, and the Supreme Court had initially denied a request from Republicans to expedite a hearing on this question of whether those ballots uh, would be counted uh, before the election, but they had left open the possibility that they might return to that question and decide that yes, those ballots could be rejected. Um, so lots of people were concerned. At this point, Biden's margin of victory in Pennsylvania looks like it's gonna be large enough uh, to where even if those ballots that were received after election day were thrown out, he would still win the state. You know, as, as I'm saying, like, let's not do any forecasting. Now I'm gonna do some forecasting well, and say, it does look like he he's, has a sizable lead. But Charlotte, hold on a second, because Donald Trump is ahead by about 150,000 votes right now, right? So so what are, what are you using to make that forecast? Yeah, yeah, so let me be even clearer. There are kind of three types of ballots we're talking about here. There are ballots that were cast uh, on election day and and counted, uh, and those votes have disproportionately gone for Donald Trump. Or ballots that were cast uh, ahead of time by mail, but received uh, at the election offices in advance of election day or on election day. Those votes are being counted and there isn't really any feasible legal challenge that I've seen that would lead those votes to get thrown out because they were received before or on election day. 
Then there's that third bucket I was talking about uh, of, of ballots that were received after election day. And those are still kind of in question. The Supreme Court might decide retroactively to throw those out. Currently, the ballots that have been counted um, are disproportionately the ones that were cast in person. And so they're disproportionately Republican. But we still have those ballots from the second group that are going to be counted. They're, they're not going to be thrown out disproportionately cast by mail and cast by Democrats. So I realize it's complicated, but we're seeing a, a shift blue already from the ballots that we can be confident are going to be counted and matter. And what we see in the data is that even if that third bucket of the ballots received after election day were thrown out, uh, once the in-person and the mail ballots that we know are gonna count are all tallied up, it looks like Biden's gonna have a, a, a pretty significant lead. So Charlotte, walk us through a scenario that is like 2000 with Florida, but played out over a few states in the sense that, you know, as these ballots come in from Arizona and Nevada, and, and even if we sort of get a final result in Georgia, the networks could call the these states in such a way that Biden or Trump, I, I suppose, has met the 270 electoral college threshold and one of the candidates may kind of declare victory. However, there might be, you know, continuing lawsuits or recounts. We already potentially have a recount in Wisconsin. And so the real, you know, sort of at a technical legal level, the election won't have been certified in at least a few states. Now in 2000, it was just Florida that we were always waiting on, but this could be a few states that this happens in. So how should we think about kind of the networks and one of the candidates saying they made it to 270 or beyond versus the reality of the situation and the and the potential for, for things to kind of continue later into November and December? It's a good question. It's a question I don't like to think about because I want this election to be over. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's on everybody's minds. Um, from what I'm gathering from the uh, election law experts, I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer, and so I also have to rely on on really smart people who study this stuff more than I do. Um, from what I can tell, it seems very unlikely at this point uh, that we are going to see this election be decided by the Supreme Court. Um, Biden has enough of a lead in enough states uh, that they're. The, the election is not hanging on a single state and, and 500, 537 votes like we saw in Florida. Um, if it were that close, there probably are uh, little ways, uh, little, little rules that uh, the Supreme Court could tinker with that would throw the election to Donald Trump, but we're not in that situation. Biden has a, he will have a sizable popular vote lead and a sizable lead uh, in enough states to be able to win. That's not to say that we're not going to see recounts. I do think we probably we probably will see recounts in Wisconsin, probably in Georgia. Um, and that said, I, from everyone I'm 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 following, who's again says this more than I do, there there doesn't seem to be much doubt that Biden will remain the victor in those states after a recount. Well, Ned Foley, who for listeners is kind of a, the godfather of, of election lies, he's a professor at Ohio State, he was on the news this morning saying, you know, recounts really matter when the margin is like a 1000 votes, you know, there you really see things go back and forth. And that, you know, that's actually true. If you think of the Minnesota Senate race in 2008, or the Washington gubernatorial race in 2004, but the margin in Wisconsin is 20,000 votes. So, you know, if recounts really matter, you know, in terms of like, like you know, fewer than a thousand votes like Florida or, or Ned Foley saying fewer than a thousand, you know, Wisconsin is maybe not where the recount matters, but we might be really close in North Carolina, Arizona, Nevada. 
again, we're going to have to wait and see. Um, I, I don't want to do too much prognosticating right now. Um, but I, I, from the numbers I've seen, I feel pretty confident that Biden has enough of a lead in enough states to keep this uh, out of the courts and, and keep it in the hands of voters. So let me ask you a big picture question, which is that, you know, right now it looks like at least 150 million people voted as, as more of the ballots come in from California and these big states that are still processing it, we'll get the final turnout number. But suffice it to say, you know, tens of millions of people voted. 50 states, 50 elections, every state is kind of different, but it keeps coming down to like these thin margins in these few states. And so how, like, I struggle in trying to explain that in a way you have this mass exercise in a, in a huge democracy that has been a democracy for so long, but at the end of the day, it's these tiny margins. It's a handful of votes here and there in these small pockets of these specific states that end up kind of determining the winner. And I mean, we've now seen this in a number of elections. It was true in 2016, it will be true in this election. It was true in 2000, it was true in 2004. This is, I, I feel like as a voter, this is kind of an exhausting system to live in. If I'm constantly just worried about the, the urban versus rural turnout in, in sort of a marginal district in North Carolina or, or outside of Las Vegas in Nevada. Right. Well, I mean, you're making a good case for abolishing the Electoral College. Right? <laughs> we don't have a national popular vote in this country. And if we did, if whoever won the popular vote were president, we wouldn't be having this podcast right now. We would have known on election night that Joe Biden had won. Um, so just for people who are a little less familiar with the structure uh, of, of how we how we conduct elections and count votes, um, we, we don't just look at who got the most votes across the country, we look at who got the most votes within a state, and then in all but a couple instances, uh, all of those states electors for the Electoral College go to whoever won, uh, whoever won uh, the most votes in the state. Uh, and that ends up really distorting uh, not just outcomes, as we've seen in the last you know, handful of elections, that often the, the, the victor is the person who didn't win the popular vote, um, but it ends up distorting which states are considered competitive and which aren't. You know, If you have a state where its voters are about 50-50, supporting one candidate versus the other, uh, all of the money and attention goes there, um, and, and those that narrow set of swing voters become super important and their vote can, has a huge impact over who gets elected president. Whereas out here, you know, I live in California, um, it, it doesn't matter for the sake of a presidential election whether I turn out or not. We know California is going to, to turn blue. My individual vote in that race just frankly doesn't have much of an impact. Matters for some down ballot races maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's a pretty distorted system. It's not a what we call a majoritarian system. Well, Kevin Johnson was on the podcast a few weeks ago, and he had an idea, which I thought was intriguing, and I'm curious to know what you think. Rather than abolishing the Electoral College as such and going to a national popular vote, having the having a proportional representation of, of electoral votes um, at the state level, rather than have a winner-take-all system for all electoral votes based on whoever wins at the state level, just have a proportional allocation of however the popular vote goes at the state level, that's how many actual electoral votes that they would get. So let's say Biden got 60% of the vote in California and Trump got 40%, Biden would then get 60% of California's electoral votes, Biden, or sorry, Trump would get 40%. And then that, that would be sort of a way to mix it up a little bit. What do you think about that? It's, 
it's not that different from going to a popular vote, right? You're, you're generally going to reach the, the same outcome. I will say it's a little less, if you switch to a proportional representation system in the electoral college, you're actually going to end up with slightly less representative outcomes because the number of electors that each state has uh, is, is the sum of its you know, members in the House of Representatives and its two senators and every state gets a gets two senators and a minimum of one representative, no matter how small its population is. So you're still going to see kind of an overrepresentation of electors uh, in, in low population states. But yeah, I mean, it would be better than the status quo. I, I, I'll take it over nothing. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about uh, other reforms. You, you've obviously spent a long time working towards election reform, and you have a piece today in the New York Times um, kind of about this idea of a federal election agency. Can you kind of walk us through, and we'll link, to, we'll link to the article as well on the show page, but can you walk us through kind of what that federal election agency is, the argument that you guys are making, and why you think this is a good idea? Sure. Yeah. So I developed this proposal in conjunction with Lee Drutman, who is a senior fellow at New America. We were stepping back a, a number of months ago and looking at our truly awful election system here in the United States. You know, he and I are both political reform scholars, and we see that we do not have consistently free, fair, and secure elections across the country. Voters get it. Um, confidence in our election system and in election results has been dropping pretty dramatically over the years. Uh, global experts get it. You know, The Economist has its democracy index uh, that has been downgrading the quality of American democracy for multiple years at this point. So we need uh, what many other advanced democracies have, which is a federal uh, enforcement agency for elections that, that both make sure that we have good standards in place and then ensures that the people in charge of executing elections are following the rule of law. Uh, we currently don't have strong federal election enforcement in this country, which I think when I was first starting to, to study politics, I, I was pretty surprised by. It. I knew we had something called the Federal Election Commission, uh, but the FEC really only looks at campaign finance laws and this year in probably the highest stakes election in, in modern history, it's been completely hobbled. It hasn't had enough people to even meet, uh, much less make important decisions. And even when it has been able to meet in past years, say under the Obama administration, it was so marred by partisan deadlock that you know, famously there was a, a, an article in maybe the Washington Post or the New York Times that said that the commissioners couldn't even agree on whether to have bagels or donuts at their meetings. They were just fighting about everything. And so the result was that no- um, Well, the no, answer is donuts. Yeah. I mean, who are these people? <laughs> they, they sound like monsters. <laughs> uh, right, so so that's a commission that, that's, that's been ineffective. And then we've had, we have something called the Election Assistance Commission uh, which uh, mainly does two things. It disperses funding to, to states for them to run their elections. And then it makes recommendations for how elections should be administered and secured. Uh, but it doesn't have any delegated authority to actually take those recommendations and turn them into uh, you know, enforceable law. And as a result, there are security loopholes that abound in our state elections. We have some states that make it incredibly easy to register and to vote you know, with automatic voter registration, same day registration, uh, with sending out ballots proactively to all registered voters. And then other states where you have to go and wait in a really long line to vote, you might not even be able to register online. You might have to go in person. You know, it just, it's incredibly complicated. You might have strict voter ID laws. So what we're calling for 
is, uh, oh, and I should say that's not even getting into questions around uh, partisan gerrymandering and whether states, you know, use uh, secure elections equipment and paper ballots or, or, or not. So what we're suggesting is a, a set of clear national standards passed by Congress uh, that, that ensure free, fair, and secure elections moving forward. But, and, and that is what the, the House Democrats had already really proposed with their HR1 uh, pro-democracy legislation that they put forth in 2019, but that we need to go a step further and actually have those laws be enforced by a federal agency. The, the big concern that everyone raises here completely understandably is that you're centralizing some power over elections uh, at the federal level. And one of our two major parties in the US right now has made itself you know, pretty clear as, as a anti-democratic force in recent elections, um, namely the Republican party. And so what happens if you have an anti-democratic force uh, take control of that agency? And so Lee and I spent a lot of time when developing this proposal, looking to the best practices of agencies that have been able to stay uh, nonpartisan, have been able to keep enforcing the rule of law and not be subject to partisan whims. Uh, and we put a lot of safeguards in place to, to try to make sure that this federal agency is, you know, continues to, to run free and fair elections well into the future, regardless of who's uh, in the presidency. So can I run through a couple what I anticipate would be objections to this proposal that you're likely to, I'm guessing, going to get on Twitter and social media today. But maybe people listen to the podcast, they can just hear your response in real time. So let me just run through a couple, okay? Uh, big picture, states' rights. States like, you know, Americans love states' rights. Well, we don't like federal agencies. Is that the criticism? States' rights. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> going to throw this out there and just have you, <laughs> rapid, you know, you can, you can pick fire. up the ball and you can pass it or spike it or whatever. Oh, yeah. sure. Rapid fire. I mean, we have uh, some states that are running elections incredibly well, the, you know, quote unquote, laboratories of democracy. And we want states to be able to innovate and do things better and better. Uh, but we also have probably half the states at this point that are actively suppressing votes that are drawing districts that allow uh, partisan legislators to entrench their own power um, that are failing to secure security loopholes and um, using proprietary election software that is where ultimately uh, we can't be confident that people's votes are being cast as intended. Uh, so it's, it's, I'm all for giving states the power to innovate and to have some control over election administration. But at the end of the day, we've got to have a, a clear set of rules that are applying to all Americans that make it easy to participate and that lead us to be confident in our election results. But let me press you on that. Um, th these laboratories of democracy in certain states, the, the, the people running those laboratories are like pinky in the brain. I mean, are you old enough to, to have watched Animaniacs? Oh, as yeah. A kid? Da -da -da -da. Peaking, yeah, pinky in the brain. So, you know, but, but maybe that's the, the strength of it. So certain states are weak, but certain states are strong. And so even if there were, for instance, let's say a foreign government that were trying to hack election infrastructure, their job is actually made harder by the fact that they have to do it in 50 states. If this were federalized, and I, I think in the proposal you mentioned that the Department of Defense could be responsible for it. I, you know, I think a lot of Americans have trust in the Department of Defense, but doesn't that then make the target for a nefarious actor that much easier because you only have to do it at one level rather than at 50 levels? So we certainly talked about this in regards to election security standards. Um, to be clear, we're not calling for the Department of Defense to do this. The Department of Defense currently does have some hand in election security. It has, for instance, been building a, a national open source voting system uh, that we reference in our proposal that we think would be great. Uh, 
so when run well, if we did not have partisan interference in local and state election administration, uh, if we had sufficient funding, um, if we could feel confident in, in every state truly running free and fair elections, uh, I, I think that this claim that having fully distributed elections uh, make, makes things safer and more secure uh, would be more convincing to me. I have heard it a lot. Um, I will say we are not calling for every election function to be centralized. I think there is still value in having decentralized election administration operating under a centralized set of rules and standards. Um, but that being said, we also have a system right now where if somebody hacks into a state election system, we might not know about it. Uh, you know, with that decentralized uh, administration comes a, 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 a lack of centralization of election security, right? And so we don't have the nation's top security experts uh, watching over our elections databases, flagging the potential for security breaches, flagging those breaches when they do occur, remedying them, making sure that, that votes were not tampered with. We have a lot of recommendations coming down from various federal institutions and states can take them or they can leave them. Um, but there is a lot of value, I think, in centralizing some of these functions so that we can have the nation's top exper experts on election security um, being able to, to, to kind of safeguard this data. Well, and I know the. I think the FBI before this election had mentioned that they they knew that two two counties and two states had been, you know, quote unquote breached. A hack is sort of a a, a word that means everything and means nothing, but let's just use the word breached. And when they said that, and you know, they they didn't reveal which ones. Um, and and this happened in 2016. I think we learned later that maybe one or two of them was in Florida. And when they said this, I thought, how enormously complicated to have to try to do this in 10,000, what is it, 10,000 jurisdictions across yeah, 10, 50 states? Like, that just sounds like an incredibly hard job for the FBI. And the FBI is pretty good at what they do. Yeah. And to be clear, we have, uh, I, I have, we have the exact number in the report. It's something like 17 different federal agencies that have their hand in some aspect of elections. And a lot of those agencies are working on election security and they're trying to identify problems before they occur. They're trying to flag them when they do occur. But yeah, they're, they're operating off of election security recommendations, not federally enforceable standards. Uh, they're pressuring states to say, use paper ballots and rely less on some vulnerable uh, technologies. And some states adopt those recommendations and have very secure election systems, but some states don't. Many states don't. Um, and it's it's just completely unacceptable right now. We It's not that we don't understand how to secure our election system at this point. A ton of research time and money has been thrown at this problem. The issue really is that we, at this point, cannot require state and local election jurisdictions to do the right thing. And I will say, many election administrators, I would say most election administrators, really do have their hearts in the right place here, and they are trying to do whatever they can to make sure that our elections run smoothly and securely. Um, but we can't ignore the fact that there are um, self-interested partisan lawmakers at the state uh, level who, for whatever reason, do not always follow these recommendations. Do you, in the in the work that you're doing and the people that you're talking to, do we, and I know this may take some time before we know the answer, but do we have any evidence so far that there were any breaches with respect to election day itself or the, the count or certification process? Yeah, I was looking into this bef uh, before this call. I haven't seen anything. I won't, I won't rule it out. Um, it seems like this election day has run 
pretty smoothly, frankly, which is which is really exciting. Um, but often we don't know about some of these issues until after the fact because um, for good reason, election administrators and federal security folks don't always want to broadcast when there's a problem happening in real time. So, so it may take some time before we sort of have a definitive uh, answer to that. I mean, I, I was asked this question yesterday and I was saying, you know, one of the good markers, just kind of as a general gut check is whether or not, and I don't mean a specific poll, but I mean, people who are really smart forecasters and, and understand how to assign probabilities, not just, you know, sort of uh, outcomes. If the elections, the results coming in kind of conform to that, that's like always my first gut check on an election, but that's that's very much informed for me working in, in other countries, sort of like, you know, are the are the are the vote counts kind of matching, you know, the pre-election surveys and exit polls and stuff like that. And there, I'm not saying there aren't a few problems, but there things aren't really going un, in an unexpected direction, right? Yeah, right. So we in political science call this a face validity check, right? We're like, does it just jive with my sense of what should be happening here? And of course, you don't leave it there. But that's kind of the first the, the, the first place you go. And I think, yeah, election results this year seem to be playing out basically how we would expect them to. And what you really would want to look for in our, our current election system is, do I see results that are very surprising, very unexpected in the most important places in the country, in those sure. swing districts and the swing states where just moving a, a, you know, a small number of votes could actually affect the outcome. And so far, I haven't really seen any evidence of that taking place. So I think one of the, I, I don't think this is exactly where um, our collective thinking is right now, given you know we're, we're still waiting for the count and, and, and thinking about stuff, but I think we're going to return to this conversation very soon. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it, which is, voting rights divided by voter suppression and, and what role the federal government can and should play with reforms along those dimensions because the constitution doesn't make this easy because the constitution gives power to the states to sort of decide important things around the franchise at the same time that it allows congress to play a role in how that's done and then obviously you know the the history of america is the history of expanding the franchise and allowing more participation and now I think people's perception of this is, is basically is basically fundamentally shaped by how they understand um, Supreme Court cases and law. But is there a role for reform at the federal level that will make it such that, you know, voters in North Carolina and Arizona and Washington and California all kind of can vote at the same level of ease or difficulty? And it's not, you know, you don't really have this race to the bottom of where it's harder to cast a ballot. Yeah, I mean, this is exactly why we're calling for some clear federal standards around elections, because it is fundamentally unfair and, and anti-democratic for some voters to have a much easier time participating uh, than others. And frankly, this is what we saw under Jim Crow laws back in the day where, you know, ostensibly Black Americans had the right to vote, but they were subject to incredibly biased um, literacy tests at polling places. And if anyone has not actually taken the time to look up what these literacy tests um, uh, had on them, I would, I would recommend you do it because often there were actually multiple versions of literacy tests, one for the white folks who came to vote and one for Black folks. And, and I, I wouldn't have been able to pass one, I don't think. Uh, one of the ones given to, to Black people. So just as that seems patently unfair when we look at it in retrospect, it should also seem patently unfair that a voter in, um, uh, let's say, Alabama 
uh, doesn't have easy opportunities to register and vote on the same day, doesn't have an easy opportunity to have their ballot sent to them where they can fill it out from the comfort of home, might be subject to stricter ID, stricter ID laws when they're going into the polling place. Whereas uh, you know, someone living in Colorado uh, can, can show up on election day if they want as an unregistered voter, get registered right then and there and vote. Or if they already are registered, they just wait for their ballot to show up, fill it out, drop it in a drop box, like easy. Um, and Colorado has one of the most secure voting systems in the country. So it, it's just unfair. and. Uh, what can be done right now about it? Well, not all that much if Democrats don't take uh, full control of, of both the House and the Senate and have a, a Biden presidency. Um, but if they were able to have unified control or if any pro-democracy party had unified control at the federal level, they could pass something like HR1, which calls for, say, um, uh, it, it has, I think, a provision for people to be able to cast their ballot uh, 15 days in advance of election day. It makes sure everyone can easily request a mail ballot. It prohibits the spreading of false or misleading election information, restores voting rights to folks who have a felony conviction but have served their time, you know, a number of, of standards that are set at the federal level. And then, as I said, we just need to make sure that those laws actually get enforced. Great. Well, Charlotte Hill, thanks so much. Do you have any closing thoughts, things to look for, uh, ideas about how the next few days are going to go, or just concluding thoughts more generally? Well, the big, the big federal change that we don't talk about in our proposal, but I think has been the the hope and dream of election uh, law reform folks for decades at this point is is to have an actual. Uh, affirmative right to vote in the Constitution. Constitutional changes are almost impossible in this country, uh, but at, at this point. Um, but, but, but say but specifically it, what that means, because I think people yeah, don't actually yeah. know that. Right. That so when, when we look at why the laws look so different from state to state, you know, part of it is a lack of national standards, but part of it is just that um, uh, no one is, is guaranteed uh, the ability to, to vote in this country. That is not a proactive right articulated in the Constitution. Instead, we have a couple uh, constitutional amendments that say that uh, various rights will not be abridged or won't be compromised on account of somebody's race, gender, you know, a, a, a few protected categories. Um, but what that means, for instance, is that we have partisan gerrymandering happening in a lot of states right now, and the Supreme Court has, says, has said, well, you can't gerrymander in order to dilute somebody's uh, vote power on account of their right, on their race, uh, but you can uh, make it, uh, you can uh, gerrymander in such a way that certain voters have more power than others on account of their party. Uh, so if, if you're a, a, just for the sake of argument, a Democratic legislator who wants to draw districts in a way that favors your party, and that means that some voters end up having more say than others, that's fine. Just don't do it on account of their race. Uh, mm. And it leads to all of these kind of awful, in, in, in my normative opinion, voting laws across the country that would simply go away and not be permitted under an affirmative right to vote in the Constitution. Because Article One leaves it to the states to decide how they franchise voters, right? Article so, One leaves it to I, the states to decide the manner uh, in yeah. which they conduct their elections. But I will say that um, that Congress is also given the right uh, to, or the authority to make or alter those regulations. Right. So, you know, our proposal is calling for Congress to exercise its authority to the extent possible. But at the end of the day, it would be even more impactful, I would argue, to just enshrine this in the Constitution. Great, I think that's a great place to end. Charlotte Hill, thanks so much, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me.
Thank you for listening to the Neither Free Nor Fair podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like the UW Political Economy Forums podcast, which is also available on iTunes and all other podcasting platforms. Our podcasts are produced by myself, Nicholas Wittstock, and Morgan Wack. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact UW Political Economy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.